let me invite you to watch the all-new Proverbs 18.10 podcast. A little bit of everything. Politics, apologetics, theology, eschatology, technical advice. Basically, a little bit of everything. You'll find it at proverbs1810.org. Remember, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are safe. And if you're saying that you know truth, if you're saying that you know what is truth, then you've got to have something to actually measure that against. Proverbs 1810 Podcast. 25 feet, a thousand layers. How many millions of years did that take to form them? The answer is it took three hours. Proverbs 1810 Podcast. This is the Proverbs 1810 Podcast, presented by me, Paul Taylor, in association with Proverbs 1810 Media. For all information about the podcast, including where to find the RSS feeds to put into your favorite podcasting software, please visit proverbs1810.org. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Paul Taylor Podcast. It has been a very long time since I've been with you and I've tried recording this uh, particular podcast a few times. I'm hopeful I'm going to get there this time, but uh, there's a lot of things that I want to talk about. I'll briefly be talking about the uh, the politics of climate change um, and uh, we'll mention a little bit about um, football uh, or soccer as uh, my American audience like to call it. It is actually called football, okay? Um, because it's played with the feet and a ball, okay? That's the clue. Um, I like the American game, but the American game should really be called hand-egg uh, rather than football. Okay, so um, we'll talk about that, and I'm going to try and do two expositions in the program because it's been so long since uh, I managed to get uh, one done. One of the expositions uh, will be on uh, um, Genesis, and we'll, uh, we'll cover some more stuff to do with um, um, the middle chapters of, uh, of Genesis, and uh, this, the other ex exposition will be on the subject of 1 Corinthians 13, a bit of a departure from uh, uh, other expositions that I've been doing recently, but uh, the reason for it is because of discussions that there are in certain circles that I tend to move in on uh, the gifts of the Spirit and whether they continue or whether they have ceased. So we'll, uh, we'll look at what the Bible has to say on that particular subject. And uh, so we'll throw in a few other um, odds and ends as they occur to me. The expositions will do from uh, my sort of static base in my apartment. Uh, some of the other bits and pieces will be from uh, my apartment. Some of them will be uh, filmed outdoors and we'll put them all together. And of course, if you're listening to the audio version, none of that will make any sense because you'll just have audio, but hopefully it will make a consistent whole and we'll get this edited and out uh, into the uh, wider world. 
as soon as we possibly can. Coming up on the Proverbs 18.10 podcast, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 13 and asking the question, have the gifts of the Spirit ceased or are they available today? And the correct biblical interpretation depends on the uh, interpretation of just one word in 1 Corinthians 13. More on that later, but first we're going back to Genesis. And when I was last going through Genesis, we had a look at Genesis 20. In particular, we saw how Abraham eventually confessed, sort of, to Abimelech about how he'd uh, made an error. He put his wife in a terrible position. It was really, in many ways, worse than the position that she'd been put in when they went to Egypt. And, uh, you know, because uh, God had already promised them that they were going to have a baby in a year. And if Abimelech had had taken Sarah into his harem, how would anyone have known? uh, Or rather, I mean, he did take her into his harem, but if he'd had relations with her, how would anyone have known whether Isaac was Abraham's son or Abimelech's son? Of course, that didn't happen. God kept Abimelech from that sin because of his purposes, uh, not because Abimelech was particularly righteous, he was definitely pagan, but because he was protecting, uh, God was protecting his uh, promise Uh, of uh, his promised seed through uh, Abraham and to the nation. So let's have a look at Genesis chapter 21 now, which is the outcome of all this. We've eventually reached the birth of Isaac. So when we have a look at Genesis chapter 21... Uh, We're on to the birth of Isaac. And of course the story so far, remembering back weeks and weeks ago when I was uh, looking at Genesis chapter 20, we saw the the, the really amazing error that uh, Abraham makes, very similar to his error when he went to Egypt, makes the error um, with Abimelech saying that Sarah was his... uh, sister rather than his wife of course we know she was his half sister but that doesn't matter because her primary relationship to Abraham and her most important relationship particularly at this moment in time is being his wife now you know you think about the risks from a human point of view that um, Abraham took he's just been previously reminded that um uh, the promise is about to be fulfilled. Uh, God has said that, you know, in a year's time, he'll come back and there will be um, a baby. So by the time Abraham is visiting Abimelech's country, um, Isaac must have been conceived, maybe only just at that point. But, you know, from a human point of view, just imagine if uh, Abimelech had actually acted on things, not only taking Sarah into his harem, which he did, but actually had relationships with her. All the doubt that would have been cast over Isaac and the whole business, therefore, of the uh, uh, descent of the promised seed of Abraham, it would all come into doubt because of Abraham's foolish actions. Now, of course, God in his sovereignty was not going to allow this, and this is why he sealed the wounds of everybody so there would be no possibility of conception anywhere in the land from uh, sexual relations and that's really why that's happened just to emphasize if there's any doubt that even if there had been any relations there could not have been any conception there in uh, that particular part of Canaan because God has sealed all the wounds you see why there was that what you might have thought was an overreaction but God in his sovereignty knew what he was doing there 
So um, it was very important that that happened. And of course, uh, it keeps Abimelech from sinning. And uh, so basically, that situation is resolved. But there is a problem, you know, you've got Abraham telling a major lie. And he's, you know, a type of God the Father. Uh, types don't have to be perfect. They're not perfect because they're human beings. There's no way that um, Abraham as a type of the father could be as perfect as the father. Just as we'll find out uh, next that Isaac is a type of the son. Uh, the second person of the Trinity um, is um, not perfect, even though Jesus is. Uh, but we still learn things from them. So therefore we get into Genesis chapter 21 now. And uh, that's what we need to look at. So let's uh, let's just turn to the scripture here. And so we read, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. You see the emphasis there that it's uh, the son is born to him and it's Sarah who bore him. It's the son of Abraham and Sarah together. Isaac, uh, the name that was previously given. Okay. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. That means Sarah must have been 90 by the way. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in his old age. And so it's just a wonderful uh, account that we have there. Um, for 18% uh, of the book of Genesis, we've been reading about uh, Abraham, focusing on Abraham. And over a time period of 30 years. And in the background, there has always been this promise that God's going to make Abraham into a great nation and he'll do it through a son born to Abraham and Sarah. And at the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, we discover that Sarah was barren. Uh, it's not that she was beyond childbearing years at that age. She was not. She was within childbearing years at that point. Like a, uh, we emphasize that she was like a, although she was 60 years old when they left Haran, she was like a young woman in her early 30s, because that's the, how we sort of uh, translate that term, the old ages into uh, the equivalent of modern ages. And so Isaac's birth was simultaneously ordinary and miraculous. Genesis 21 verse 1 makes it clear that Isaac's birth was the Lord's doing. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Isaac came about then as a visitation, as a result of a visitation of the Lord, and that's why Isaac is reminiscent of Jesus. Isaac's a type of Christ. It almost reads, of course, as if Abraham were not involved, but verse two makes it clear that Abraham was involved. This was not a virgin birth. Uh, this was actually Abraham's son, the child of promise. We read Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. So the parallels and the typology are very strong. For example, the question is often asked how Jesus had the right to sit on David's throne. Just let me pursue a bunny trail on this one uh, and I'm going to relate it all back to Isaac in a moment. But there were two distinct methods of rightfully obtaining kingship over Israel. One was by descent from King David and the other was by divine prophetic appointment. David himself was appointed by the second method, divine appointment, just as King Saul was. Because David, as you can see, was not descended from Saul. And Saul was the first king, so not descended from any king. So it had to be by divine appointment. But Solomon, 
ascended the throne by descent. Um, we do know that the king, that the kingship of the northern ten tribes, which would therefore be known as Israel, was removed from Solomon's son Rehoboam be, uh, because of Solomon's sin. So the kings of Judah in the south received their legal position by descent from David, but Jeroboam in the north got his kingship by divine appointment. And in the in the north, um, if anyone tried to be king by descent in the north, that didn't work. They were overthrown quickly. If they tried to usurp the throne, they were overthrown quickly. Um, appointment of kings in the north was by divine appointment. Even bad kings appointed by divine appointment. Um, we find that uh, God had decreed, uh, of course, uh, in the south, in Judah, the kings are, are, are by descent and eventually reached Jeconiah. But then God says that no son of Jeconiah will ever ascend the throne of, uh, of uh, Israel. And this, of course, is very important because um, there's a couple of reasons. Um, you see, the next king after Jeconiah was Zedekiah, but he was not a descendant of Jeconiah. He was uh, the brother of uh, Jeconiah. So you see, he was legally able to become king because he was descendant of David. But he could not uh, because uh, God had torn the throne completely away from Jeconiah. So he was able to be king, albeit he was only king for a very short time. But God did that for a purpose to show that you could have kingship over Judah by descent without being descended from Jeconiah. Now here's an important point because Joseph, who married Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a descendant of Jeconiah. So you see, Joseph could not possibly be king. Some people say, well, Jesus inherited the kingship through uh, Joseph, who was his um, adopted father. Not so. He couldn't inherit the kingship that way. Uh, there was no, uh, although there's a bloodline there, it couldn't be that Joseph could inherit the kingship. He can't. So, so Jesus couldn't inherit the kingship from Joseph because uh, Joseph is a descendant of Jeconiah and the throne's been torn away. But Jesus was a blood descendant of David nevertheless because you don't have to be a son of Solomon and you don't have to be a son of Jeconiah, you see? Um, because uh, David had lots of other sons and one of his sons was Nathan and in Luke's Gospel chapter 3 we read another genealogy which is actually the genealogy of Mary if you study it care uh, carefully. You'll find that it's... Uh, um, it's, it's, it's the genealogy of Mary. Mary was a blood descendant of King David from his son Nathan rather than his son um, uh, Solomon. And so Jesus could inherit the kingship through that line, uh, the kingship of Judah. But you see, he could also inherit the kingship of Israel and therefore the whole of uh, uh, the nation because he was uh, divinely appointed. So you've got both strands there. Okay, what's that got to do with Isaac? Well, just before I mention what it's got to do with Isaac, I should point out that if you want to study more on the legality of the kingship of Jesus, um, there's a, a very important study by uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. If you read his book, um, Hamashiach, uh, the Messiah of the Hebrew Scriptures, and have a look at uh, Appendix 6. And you'll find there the legal descent of uh, Jesus, the legal appointment of Jesus as king over the whole of Israel, the United Kingdom of Israel. But what's it got to do with Isaac? Because Isaac's not a descendant of David. In fact, he's an ancestor of David. And so is Abraham. Uh, but David obviously owed his kingship to this important messianic line of descent. 
Isaac was not a king, but he was a patriarch, so in that sense he was a ruler of God's chosen people to come. The other kingly uh, qualification obviously applies here. Isaac's birth was specifically and specially announced by divine appointment and prophecy. It's especially wonderful that Isaac's name means laughter. That's quite important because uh, Abraham gave him the name Isaac in Genesis 21 verse 3. But that naming was also done by divine appointment. We read about the giving of the name Isaac in Genesis chapter 17 verse 19. That comes from God. The parallels don't make Isaac a king, but they are sufficient to show that Isaac is a type of Christ. So in the subsequent sections, uh, we'll need to have a look at how that typology plays out. Well, Isaac was circumcised by his father on his eighth day of life. That was an act of obedience by Abraham. And that act of circumcision can usually be assumed in new children in the Old Testament. But they explicitly mention here, um, Moses explicitly mentions that in his narration of Genesis. Uh, so because that's again another parallel of the life of Jesus where the explicit mention of Jesus' circumcision is recorded. It's noteworthy about Sarah's laughter, by the way. In Genesis 17, her laughter had been a laughter of disbelief and she was criticised for it. But in chapter, in chapter 21, her laughter is no longer a laughter of disbelief. It's a laughter of belief and praise to God who's worked out everything as he said. You see, we should note that Sarah has now become a woman of faith, whereas earlier she lacked faith. And you see, it's not only Abraham who is mentioned in the so-called Hall of Faith of Hebrews 11. Sarah appears there also in her own right, where it says in Hebrews 11:11, 11, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. So it's a, it's a wonderful section of scripture there, that beginning of Genesis chapter 21. Uh, it just helps us to understand uh, the importance of the birth of Isaac and how significant this is for the life of the nation. So there are two other sections to Genesis chapter 21. Let's have a look at those on subsequent occasions. Uh, we'll have a look at the expulsion of Hagar and Ishmael from uh, Abraham's camp and why that's important. And we will have a look at the treaty between Abraham and Abimelech, which is also very important. Huge uh, significance to all the sections of Genesis chapter 21. But for now, I think it's time that uh, I said we were going to talk about the politics of climate change. So let's move on to that. Actually, before we go on to the politics of climate change, let's have a little bit of music. Hey? Um, this instrument, as many of you know, is called a melodica. I love it. It makes the same sort of sound as a harmonica. Uh, because it's a, a, a free reed um, instrument. There's air blowing straight over differently tuned reeds. Um, but in this case, it, the um, reeds are being controlled. The passage of air through the reeds is being controlled by a piano keyboard, which means that uh, it aligns with all my skills, uh, hopefully, as a keyboard player. This is an English folk tune, and it's called Postman's Knock. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha 
one of the reasons why I like living in Northern Idaho, as opposed to, say, living in Florida, where I did live for a few years, is to do with the climate. And, you know, every other way, I really like Florida. Um, I like the history there. Uh, the beaches look stunning. Um, the people I, I really I liked, although I like the people here in, uh, in Idaho. Um, but I couldn't get on with the climate, you know, particularly during the summer. I suppose the winter climate's quite nice, and I can see the advantage of being a snowbird. It was nice to uh, sit on Pensacola Beach on a Christmas day. That's pretty good. But, um, you know, it's it's tough otherwise. You, you have to have your air conditioning on full in the, the summer, and you go out to get your mail, and by the time you get back inside, you really could do with another shower. Um, anyway, all that to say, you know, there's a climate difference. And how do we control that climate? Well, we control it with energy. So, you know, the, the opposite end of the state, the climate in northern Idaho, let's face it, is quite difficult during the winter. Uh, I've had two winters here. The first winter was not so bad. It was pretty, you had uh, nice snow, but last winter was really quite fierce. Although, you know, many of the locals who've been here since, you know, the time of Noah, um, tell me that this that even last winter was not not one of the worst by any means you know there's a sort of way that local people will nod sagely and you know tell you that uh, things are, could be a good deal worse and particularly when i was a lad you know things were much much worse in those days but um obviously during the cold weather then you need to use energy then so you know energy is necessary and when we have uh, climate uh, issues we use energy to solve them Okay, whether it be that uh, things are too hot or too cold, we use energy to solve them. In the past, people didn't have energy, and so that uh, limited what you could do uh, in controlling that climate. But we're pretty good at controlling climates now, using energy. Now, as one writer has mentioned, and I'll have to look up his name, and... Uh, I think I'll put it on the bottom of the screen or something like that because uh, I can't remember off the top of my head his name and I'm not going to go back inside right now to um, to find uh, the book Concern. But um, there was a, a, a really good book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Um, you know, I want to say the author's called Alex Epstein, but I don't know. Maybe I've got the name Epstein on the brain from other things. I don't know, but okay, I, I could be wrong. However... The point is, there is this book called The Moral Case for um, Fossil Fuels. And uh, he mentions in this book that really uh, a good energy source needs four important properties. It needs to be cheap. It needs to be plentiful. It needs to be reliable. And it needs to be scalable. Those are the four uh, things that uh, an energy source needs. So, you know, we've got this... Um, uh, inflation bill that's gone through uh, Congress and uh, um, the, um, the the senile man in the White House has signed it, so it's the law now. And um, it's not really there for tackling inflation. There's all sorts of other stuff in it, and one of the main things is uh, is the so-called green issues. There's a lot of stuff on uh, climate, so-called climate science. And I've criticised climate science before, and we can go into the details of that. Well, we'll do, we, we have gone into details on another occasion, on other occasions in the past, and I can go into details in the future. Let me just stick to one thing for now, and let's analyse a couple of fuels from those four perspectives. 
You see, uh, solar power and wind power can both be analysed from those. And you might say, well, let's look at the first property, cheap. Obviously, they're cheap, aren't they? The sun's uh, shining is free. And the wind is free. So uh, they're definitely very cheap. Well, they're not as cheap as you might think because you've got to get some infrastructure there. Uh, the, um, you've seen the sort of wind turbines that you have to use. They are enormous. And those wind turbines have to be made from um, you know, quite complex alloys. Uh, and the, um, the, the petroleum products that are used in the blades means that you're still going to have to get oil out of the ground. Um, the, the materials that are used for the solar panels are uh, quite extensively uh, difficult to manufacture. And um, so they're, they're, they're not actually as cheap as you might think. Uh, in both cases, you need to back them up with batteries for reasons that we'll come to in a moment. And, of course, the materials used for batteries are not cheap. The lithium and the cobalt that you need to get are not cheap, nor, by the way, can they be mined easily because they're both um, in, found in very small quantities and therefore you need huge holes in the ground. And those holes in the ground, they don't tend to build them here in the United States. They tend to um, um, export them by a, f a form of uh, latter-day... Uh, colonialism to uh, countries like uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's a good ring to it, hasn't it, that name, Democratic Republic of Congo, because it's not uh, democratic and it's not even a republic since uh, one president uh, uh, succeeds his father and so on. Um, Congo is about the only truthful word in there. Um, but the point is, uh, it's causing a lot of disease among the uh, people who have to dig these materials out in hazardous conditions, um, both materials being uh, having ores that are pretty poisonous and they, they're difficult to extract. So they're not... Basically, wind power and solar power are not as cheap as you think when you start to take all these other factors into account. So, um, plentiful. Well, of course, the sun's always there and uh, the wind is always there. Well, it's not true, actually. In both cases, they're not. And although the sun is in the sky, um, it's, um, it's intermittent. It's not out at night. And when do you need most energy? Usually in the evening. That's, again, why you need the batteries to back the thing up. Now, by the way, I do like solar power. And um, I thought about showing you my little solar-powered uh, device, which is a device for charging up cell phones like this. You know, And I can leave it in the sunshine. Uh, got a lovely little... Um, it's about the size of my hand. Well, probably about the size of a uh, cell phone, and uh, one face is a solar panel. It's great, and even bigger solar panels can be good, you know, for individual use, for individual um, houses. It's a great way of reducing uh, your cost, but you really still need the ordinary um, electrical connection. Well, maybe you can be off-grid, uh, but you probably have to um, ration things if you do, and many people are off-grid do have their generators that might be powered by propane or gasoline uh, so they've got some backup um, at times when the sun is not out or when the wind is not blowing because you see they're not as plentiful as you might think and the energy that they give is uh, needs a lot of concentrating it's a lot uh, less powerful you know you 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 get um, a huge wind farm of uh, you know, uh, you can imagine a, a typical wind farm of about uh, 50-odd uh, wind turbines, and you're probably going to need about um, 
50 of those in total to produce as much energy as one typical uh, small nuclear power station or a coal-fired power station, for example. So um, the, the concentration of energy is a problem. So wind and solar are not as cheap as you think, and they're not as plentiful as you think. Now, what about reliable? Well, they're clearly not reliable at all. The wind will drop. If the wind is uh, not sufficient, you don't get power. But actually, if the wind is too strong, you don't get power either because uh, you need to have a safety mechanism. You can't have those uh, turbines breaking so easily. So, And they last about 10 years. That's all. Uh, most other power stations last a lot longer than that. So you've got problems. And by the way, I didn't mention with the infrastructure, you're going to have to build your wind turbines in places that are not close uh, to... Um, uh, not usually close to uh, areas of population, so you've got to get the the wires. You've got to get the uh, the cables to those areas to carry the the power cables to carry the uh, energy away from them and get it into the grid system. Um, so they're not reliable. That's certainly the case. Um, the sun goes behind clouds. It's already become evening here. The sun has gone down as I'm recording this. It's becoming darker. Probably in the few minutes I record this, it'll get a bit darker and darker. But that's the way it is. Um, that's the way it is. And um, uh, so they're not, they're not reliable. They're not cheap. They're not as cheap as you think. They're not as... Um, uh, as plentiful as you think, they're not reliable. What about scalable? Well, there's a problem. They're really not scalable at all. You know, um, because of the small scale of them, you're not going to be able to generate large amounts with wind power or solar power. And by the way, you, you hear about a, a wind turbine um, typically giving you a certain amount of energy. That's usually, they're, they're usually quoting the maximum. They're usually quoting the maximum. In, in practice, uh, the, the windmill will probably give us about 20% of the, uh, the maximum uh, energy uh, on an average. So you're not really getting um, the amount of energy you want. They're not scalable. You can't really scale the energy up uh, at all easily, which, of course, you can with other forms of energy. Um, because of the intermittent nature of wind turbines, by the way, a lot of people don't realize that you've got to have an equivalent amount of um, natural gas uh, turbines, power stations that can come online because that is the, the fossil fuel that can come online the fastest. Uh, you know, you don't want to wait for a coal-fired power station to uh, warm up from zero and you don't really want it ticking over, wasting energy at a low level to raise it to a higher level. So it's usually natural gas. So you, you've got large numbers of natural gas power stations to back up the wind turbines. So for every megawatt that the wind turbines would produce, you've got to have in reserve the natural gas amount so that that can replace the wind when it's going down, when it's intermittent. Okay, so wind and uh, solar are not, they don't really uh, fulfill those four criteria. They're not as cheap as you think, they're not as uh, plentiful as you think, they're not reliable, and they are certainly not scalable. But you know what is, and what fulfills all four of those? Coal. Coal is cheap. You can dig it up out of the ground and it's in large quantities, unlike lithium. Mining is not an e equivalent process. The amounts of lithium you get are tiny, tiny, tiny amounts. But the amounts of coal you get, where there's a good coal seam, are going to be very large. It's easy to mine from the ground, relatively speaking. So it is, it is cheap 
and it is plentiful there is a lot of it there's a lot of coal under the antarctic for instance but most countries of the world have large coal deposits that they are choosing to ignore and uh, to leave in the ground so it's a narrow-sighted policy it shouldn't happen but the, the coal deposits are plentiful and could last for uh, if the world t uh, carries on and the lord tarries uh, coal deposits could last for another five or six thousand years that's a long while, and it's longer than we've actually been using coal for these uh, for these processes. So it's, it's a long time. And by the way, human ingenuity suggests that uh, by the time coal is about to run out, there will be other things that we'll be able to find. Maybe we will have found, uh, you know, other other ways of harnessing some of the uh, intermittent energies that are, that are going to be more reliable by then. We certainly don't have that at the moment. And uh, finally, it's scalable. Well, it is scalable. All you need are bigger power stations to scale them up. Bigger power stations using more coal, using more turbines, perhaps better turbines, more efficient turbines, larger flywheels and so on. You've got um, an easily scalable process. And of course, the argument then is, well, isn't coal dirty? And of course, it doesn't have to be. We're not in the Victorian era anymore. There are plenty of technologies these days for burning coal smokelessly, even coal that actually has smoke in, for removing the smoke, for removing the carbon monoxide, for removing the sulfur dioxide and the various toxins. These things can be removed and uh, modern power stations do so. It's very easy to remove those things. We have uh, the technology to do it. So you see that there's an immediate moral case there. We should be using coal because it's got a plentiful supply. It is cheap. It is reliable, it's not going to constantly be turning on and off, and it is scalable. And so it fulfills all the points that solar and wind power do not. And therefore, uh, it would make far more sense for us to return to a coal-fired economy that has given us in the Western world what we need. And by the way, there are so many third world developing countries that have vast coal deposits that are being forbidden to use them because uh, organizations like the United Nations or the European Union will not allow them um, will not allow them to um, uh, 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 to use those coal deposits it's a big problem um, so you know a, a better world would allow such countries like Botswana for example to uh, develop their coal deposits utilize them and expand their industry and therefore raise the living standards of people in the countries uh, it's something that's not being allowed at the moment and it ought to be to encourage uh, people in uh, in developing countries to be able to do precisely that develop and catch up the western world in what they do I guess that's one of the things that really ought to be addressed is why has it been such a long time since I've managed to do one of these podcasts and uh, am I going to be able to keep up with them once I've got this one released and can't necessarily give you the answer to the uh, second question but um, it is my hope and my intention to do so and to return to getting them out regularly but um, I've been struggling, I've been suffering with what um, former Prime Minister Winston Churchill used to call uh, the black dog. Um, I really have been pretty low and uh, so there have been times when I thought, yeah, I'll sit down and I'll get something recorded, but I've 
just been unable to do so. I've been unable to put my mind to it because of various things um, going on. Now, you shouldn't have too much sympathy here because there are people where <clears throat> for whom depression is a chemical issue. There are certain chemicals that are imbalanced. Um, they need correcting. I honestly don't think that's the reason for most people's depression and I honestly don't think it's the case for me. I think for most people, well, I don't have statistics. Alright, for me, and I suspect some other people, depression is basically selfish. Okay? When I'm depressed, it's because I'm selfish. Things haven't necessarily gone the way that I planned or that I hoped. There are things that uh, God has not done and I don't know why. <clears throat> I thought they would be good. Um, I, and I don't know why I allow that to get me down. Because I, Well, I know where our temptations come from. Our temptations come from three sources, remember? Uh, the Apostle John talks about this three sources are the world, the flesh and the devil and so yes I do feel as if I've been under satanic attack just as all Christians are yes there are temptations around us in the world, things that we see that we'd like more and yes a lot of it comes from within me because of my sinful nature so I've had pity parties, and I can't necessarily claim that I'm completely out of it now, but if you get the chance to pray for me on this, a lot of people have prayed for me, um, and I, as I said, I know that it's something that um, I need to look through myself, God's help, uh, because there is a great deal of selfishness about it, really, that's where so much of it comes from. So uh, I appreciate your prayers on that and uh, hope that this uh, podcast is of use and of service to you. So let's continue with what comes up next. So many of you know my background, the way that I am. I'm a, a Christian from uh, the Reformed tradition, um, evangelical, Bible-believing, uh, gospel-preaching and teaching. Uh, that's my background. Uh, I'm not one who's um, given to strange things, strange events, unless God leads me through those particular things. That's my background. Now... Many people from a similar background to myself have been talking about and uh, asking for support for a forthcoming um, movie documentary, which is called Cessationist. And the idea is that it uh, looks at scripture and purports to find that um, scripture teaches that um, all the miraculous gifts of the Spirit have ceased with the ending of the canon of scripture. Now, 
the thing is we need to decide a number of things uh, because people who, who make such a statement are coming to the scriptures with a particular bias and a particular prejudice, uh, uh, which you will not actually find in scripture. So it's very much a case of eisegesis. Uh, people do not want to uh, believe that the, uh, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit are still present. And so they will look for that. And their methods of trying to find that in scripture are becoming increasingly desperate. And it's a shame because many of the people who hold to such views are people who are critical of eisegesis in other areas. But it's very, very important that we come before Scripture and see what Scripture actually teaches, not according to our prejudices. Now, I, I'm, I believe that I'm pretty well placed uh, to um, comment in such a way because, you know, there's been a number of unusual um, things in my background. For example, I was saved at the age of 15. I was saved in a non-reformed church. It was very much an Arminian church. And um, in fact, I was, uh, through various means, was uh, really taught to be very distrustful of anyone who had any Calvinist ideas. And then one day when I was working in a Christian bookshop, well, actually not one day, but over a period of time, a pastor who frequently came into the bookshop and, taught, and uh, talked, had conversations, um, convinced me that I needed to look into uh, the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism. He led a study group in the town uh, on reformed issues. Okay. What was this pastor's background? You are not going to like this. This pastor was a pastor in the Assemblies of God. He was a Pentecostal. And it was a Pentecostal pastor that switched me on to Reformed theology. Now, in my midlife, maybe it was a midlife crisis, but I started to look at a number of doctrines that I had uh, believed over a period of time and I wanted to re-examine many of them. I particularly wanted to re-examine my eschatology, uh, which is why it's something that's very uh, important to me to analyze today. I did want to um, uh, analyze this idea of uh, cessationism versus continuism. Uh, this one really did not take a long time to analyze because I believe the scripture is so very clear on the subject. And um, I wanted to re-examine my Calvinism, and I really came to the uh, idea that I probably wasn't a full five-point Calvinist, I was a four-point Calvinist. In fact, I was a three-and-a-half-point Calvinist, because I did see Christians who seemed to have been genuinely saved falling away, and I wasn't sure what was meant by perseverance of the saints, which seems to put the emphasis on the uh, Christian that they're going to persevere, even though that perseverance comes from God. I eventually realized quite quickly that that's not what that phrase meant. And unfortunately, really, the, the attempt to try and uh, force these five points into uh, a number of uh, ideas that will uh, spell out uh, an easy mnemonic, such uh, as tulip, uh, is a problem. I realized that the fifth point is best described as blessed assurance. So the fact that uh, this assurance has come from God, we have assurance that we are going to be saved because that has come from God, not because of anything we've done, um, but because of God, and it's he who's decided that. So I had a similar problem with the third point, the idea of limited atonement. How can God have limited things? How can he even have limited himself? 
uh, surely he's able to save anyone. And of course, the answer is yes, of course, he is able to save anyone. But that, but he doesn't do so because he is sovereign. And throughout all these years, when I was trying to re-examine many of these doctrines, I could not discard the doctrine of sovereignty of God. It seemed obvious to me that God has to be sovereign over everything. Uh, nothing makes sense without that. God is not God without sovereignty. And so it just made sense when I heard another preacher say that he preferred uh, the third doctrine of grace being referred to as um, particular redemption rather than um, uh, limited atonement. Particular redemption. God is particular about who he redeems. He has chosen who he redeems. He's elected. He's chosen those who he redeems. So if anyone knows a flower that goes by the name of Chupib, T-U-P-I-B, that would be a better mnemonic for the five doctrines of grace than tulip would. And that's, uh, uh, looking at those, I'm definitely a five-point Calvinist, if that's the five points. Um, of course, those five points are not the central part of a Reformed theology. The sovereignty of God is the, is the central part of Reformed theology. But it is manifested in the idea that we are totally depraved, that we are unconditionally elected. God decides to choose who he will, that uh, he chooses the particular people who he's going to save. That's the way he designed things. Uh, when the Holy Spirit calls us, that is irresistible. It's irresistible grace. And we have the blessed assurance uh, uh, that our salvation doesn't depend on us, it depends on him, and therefore we're going to be saved uh, because of the way that he has saved us uh, according to his sovereignty. Okay, that having been said, let's go into the scriptures then, and you'll see how if you're going to take a mature and um, firm view of, uh, of scripture and its truth, you're going to have to be what's known as a continuationist. Let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 13. And by the way, I can't cover everything on this particular subject in one uh, uh, short exposition now. So there's a few things I'll, put, I'll pick up and I'll say, let's, let's come back to that another time. So 1 Corinthians 13 is in the middle of three chapters, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, which are teaching on the gifts of the Spirit. And of course, if you're going to say that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased, then you've got a problem. What, um, what's the purpose of this teaching? Of course, it's not the only place where you have uh, teaching on this particular subject. Uh, there are other places too. Uh, so that, uh, for example, um, in Romans, um, Romans chapter 12, uh, we've got uh, a certain number of gifts mentioned here. And... Um, these things are mentioned. Let's, let's have a look at um, verse 3 onwards, which I think is quite useful to look at. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, but and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one and not one of another. Having gifts that differ, and by the way, that shows that there isn't an individual gift that you can say all Christians have to have. Let's put that straight up front because that will make me differ from many Pentecostals and quite a lot of charismatics too. Um, it's quite clear from the context that you cannot demand that everyone has one particular gift, for example, the gift of tongues, which isn't mentioned here in Romans 12, by the way, 
But having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let's let us use them. So if prophecy, then in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. To the one who teaches, in his teaching. To one who exhorts, in his exhortation. To one who contributes in generosity. To one who leads with zeal. And one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Do acts of mercy exist today as a gift? Surely the answer is yes. Does leadership exist today as a gift? The answer again must be yes. Does uh, generosity and giving, contributions exist today? The answer is yes. Does exhortation exist today? The answer is yes. Is teaching a gift that you'll find today? The answer is yes. Is service, uh, does that exist today? The answer is yes. So what about prophecy? Does that exist today? Oh, no, 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 no. It's a miraculous gift. It can't possibly happen. Well, I hope you can see that that is pretty arbitrary, the way that we're considering that. And that's why it's going to be important to get into 1 Corinthians 13, um, so that we won't take an arbitrary view. We'll actually take a reasoned scriptural view. And let's read that particular passage right now. So, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even, if I, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, we have seen at the beginning of this passage the concept of tongues, of prophetic powers, and mysteries and knowledge. Even a special form of faith, an extreme faith that can move mountains. We can see that all those are possible, they do not themselves uh, speak of spiritual maturity, because it is possible to have those things but not have love, in which case you're nothing. But if you're exercising them with love, then they are extremely important and extremely powerful. So let's have a look at those. We need to understand when these things are going to happen, how long they're going to happen. And maybe I think we need, probably need to understand what prophecy actually is. And I'll, I'll hint a little bit at it today. 
But I think we probably need a much more detailed exposition on what uh, New Testament prophecy actually is. But we clearly have got tongues, we've got prophecy, and we've got the gifts of special knowledge. And clearly this is not talking about knowledge in order to know everything that's in the world, because we can't possibly know everything that's in the world. To some extent, even when we come into um, God's kingdom, we won't know everything except, but of course, everything we do know will be perfectly known. And to some extent, that's the case today. We don't know everything, but we do know somebody who does everything and we rely entirely on what he says um, because we know that everything he tells us is absolutely true. And we need to come to the scripture with that in mind, of course. So as we've been talking about love and the importance of love, we then come to an end and we see this important uh, phrase that prophecies are going to pass away. Paul is saying that prophecies will pass away. He's saying that tongues will cease. He's saying that knowledge will pass away. Why? Because there'll be a time when they're not needed. So from that point of view, we can say that we're all cessationists if we come to this passage. Prophecies are clearly, Paul is clearly saying that prophecies will cease, well, prophecies will pass away, tongues will cease, knowledge will pass away. He's just using different phrases, by the way, that mean the same thing here. He's clearly saying the same thing. Uh, Paul is a cessationist. He's saying that these things are going to go. I am therefore a cessationist. These things clearly come to an end. The question is, when will they come to an end? Well, the point is that at the moment, just taking two of those gifts, we know in part and we prophesy in part because we haven't got a full um, accounting of uh, what's going to happen. And so when does that come to an end? When do we know in full and prophesy in full? When do those uh, full things happen? It's when the perfect comes. When the perfect comes. And this is very important that we see that, that it all hinges on this word, the word perfect. Of course, when we have a look at that in the Greek, we find that it's uh, tell I, I can not very good at pronouncing Greek things. We can see it's uh, tell I own, tell I own. I think that's right. But it's related to the word that um, Jesus said on the cross when he says it is finished to telestai. So it's clearly referring to something that is complete and finished. Perfect refers to something that is is complete and finished. So the only, the only other time we get this idea of something being complete and finished, Jesus has said it, but Paul is speaking after Jesus. So clearly there's another time when there's going to be a perfect coming. And the argument from cessationists is that the perfect must be the closing of the canon of Scripture. Now we can go into this point on the closing of the canon of Scripture another time. Can we take it for now that I fully accept the closing of the canon of Scripture? Um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints make a big thing about saying that prophecy has not ceased because uh, inscripturation has not ceased. The idea of biblical prophecy has not ceased. So you can have a prophet like Jeremiah and Isaiah. Um, I deny that completely. The canon of scripture is closed. The full um, revelation of 
Christ necessary for our salvation and for our teaching. Uh, you know, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is complete. That is over. We've got it all in scripture. But the word perfect clearly here in the obvious context does not refer to the closing of the canon of scripture. Now, I have heard people say, well, it must do, because if we go back and we look at these gifts, prophecies, tongues, knowledge, that these are words describing inscripturation. I deny that. They are not. Tongues, for a start, cannot be prophetic. Tongues are prayers directed to God. We'll have a look at that from 1 Corinthians 14 on another occasion. But tongues are not prophetic. And that, by the way, um, will show you that I would disagree with the way that tongues are used in many Pentecostal and charismatic churches, where someone stands up and gives tongues, and then someone stands up and gives an interpretation. And let's put the word interpretation in air quotes because what they're actually doing is delivering a prophecy. Well, that prophecy has not come from the tongues. And I, uh, and I am happy that I was in a church once that called people out on this, that someone uh, gave a, uh, a message in tongues, someone stood up and gave a prophecy, which in fact um, this claimed was a, uh, an interpretation of the tongues, but it was not. And they, they were called out and said, well, that's, Sounds like a prophetic word, but it's not an interpretation of the tongues. So let's see if somebody, please, has an interpretation of the tongues. And it's very important that that was going to come about. And uh, there's a message on my phone, so I am going to just pause this recording and get up and have a look at that. And I'll be back in just a tick. So I'm back, hopefully recording again after a brief pause. Hopefully it looks okay. Um, I was trying to say that uh, prophecies, tongues, and knowledge are not in scripturation. Tongues certainly is not. We've seen that. It's not even giving a message. It's a prayer. And if you're going to tell me that prayers are wrong, they're clearly not. Prayers are something that, you know, where most Christians will extemporize as, as they feel led. And tongues is simply when uh, human language uh, runs out from that. Um, knowledge, again, we're not talking about knowing everything. I certainly can't know everything in the universe. That's not what it's referring to. It's referring to particular insights, you know, um, such as when I lived um, in the Manchester area and uh, someone had a word of knowledge in a dream that the pastor and the church secretary were having an affair that nobody uh, else was able to find out. God had put that word of knowledge in place so that the church could deal with it, which they did. Um, that is not adding to scripture. There was no new doctrine there. The idea of a pastor being disciplined for sexual misconduct was not new. It was simply that that particular thing was being revealed, that particular knowledge was being revealed in that particular place. That's what we're talking about with knowledge, not inscripturation. And even prophecy um, is not inscripturation. New Testament prophecy is not inscripturation. Now, I do need to go into that in detail on another occasion, but I can't say nothing at the moment. So I am going to make a little point here. And uh, to do so, I'm going to just turn over to 1 Corinthians 14 to make this particular point. 
in 1 Corinthians 14, and uh, I'm looking at uh, the Bible uh, app there, but I haven't put that on the screen for you. So here it is, 1 Corinthians 14. I want to go down and have a look at the section which in the ESV is headed, Orderly Worship. Uh, how are we going to worship? Let's just look, read a couple of verses. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn let someone interpret. There has to be an interpreter there. If there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Now, when you read everything that the Apostle Paul has said about preaching, about uh, exposition, you'll see that that's not what's being said here. Um, two or three prophets need to, uh, to speak and the others should weigh what is said. Now, if, we go, if prophecy is simply um, what the Bible says, are we going to weigh that? Oh, yes, we're going to interpret it, but weighing doesn't mean that. Weighing is talking about whether this is truthful or not. If we read a passage of scripture, we are not going to weigh it to see if it's true. We are maybe going to make sure we understand it properly, yes, but that is not weighing. That is not weighing. Um, weighing is uh, when people get together and they decide this bit's true, this bit's false. And the very fact that you can do that to prophecy without taking the prophets out and stoning them shows you immediately that New Testament prophecy is different from Old Testament prophecy. And there are reasons for that. We'll have to go into that. It's to do with the Greek language. It's to do with the word that's translated prophet, which has a different set of emphases than the Hebrew word, which is translated prophet. So it's perfectly normal and natural that there is a difference. The word is wider. Uh, the, the New Testament concept of prophecy is wider. So it's not talking about someone trying to give scripture. Now, if someone tries to give scripture and can be shown to be wrong, maybe we should be taking them out and uh, and stoning them. But that is not what this particular type of prophecy is talking about. It's talking about, because uh, it's saying the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. They're not speaking, as some people claim, just because they have to, because God's uh, forced them to say it. This is not on the level of authority of Scripture. It is definitely much lower in authority than Scripture. Because if you're going to weigh what's said, what standard are you going to use? You're not going to use other people's impressions. You're going to use the standard of Scripture because that is the rock-solid standard. Scripture is closed, and so there can be prophecies, but they are wading in Scripture. And the very first thing you can say is that if something is adding to Scripture or subtracting from Scripture or opposing Scripture, it is clearly wrong, and we will reject it straight away. So, there's a lot more we can go into on the subject of the nature of prophecy, but I hope that that win, uh, will give you a little bit of a clue as to where we're going here, because prophecy, as being described here in 1 Corinthians 13, is not inscripturation. You do not weigh what has been inscripturated, because it's there, it's the canon of scripture, and it is true. So... That's very important because um, one talk that I heard on this subject started with this very thing and saying, well, this is, uh, this is clearly scripture. And uh, so, you know, this is on the level of inscripturation. Well, it is not. It is not. So the perfect coming is not ending here, uh, um, an inscripturation. Elsewhere we can read in scripture uh, 
that the canon of Scripture is closed, we can infer it from other places in Scripture. It's not difficult to do, and I would go into that, but that's not the purpose of this particular talk. I want to analyse what the perfect means so that we know when uh, the partial will pass away. And what then people have said is when they want to talk about cessationism, they say, well, everything else from here are examples. So like when it says, for we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, that's an example. Well, hold on. It may be an example, but it's an example that's illustrating when the perfect comes. You see, you've got this one in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. When do we give up childish ways? When the perfect comes and the partial will pass away. It's an example. It doesn't mean that we're actually children now. It is an example. It's an illustration. But clearly it's an illustration that's talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, talking about when we... Um, give up childish ways when the perfect has come. So we've got another example. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Of course, mirrors were not, uh, they didn't have back silvering on glass in those days for mirrors. Mirrors were much poorer than that. They were polished metal. And so what you would see would be dimly. But then we'll see face to face. Yes, obviously, we're not talking about mirrors. We're not talking about seeing face to face. But we are talking about an illustration. So the words now and then are important. It's like we've got an example of what happens now. Well, what happens now is while we have the partial. That's the link there. What happens now is with the partial. What happens then is when the perfect comes. So what's the contrast in time scale? Seeing in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Well, let's have a look at the second example, then we'll know. Now I know in part, using that same phrase again. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. When's that going to happen? Again, it is an illustration, so it's not directly talking about the same thing, but it is talking about the same time scales. Now... And then, now is clearly now, when is then? When I shall know fully, when I shall see face to face. Well, that is clearly and obviously talking about the second coming. And yet talks I've heard are saying, no, it's not talking about the second coming. That doesn't make sense. It's not saying Christ, we see Christ face to face. It's the point about the juxtaposition of the words now and then, the ideas that are going together there. What's happening now? What's happening then? This is what we need to understand. That contrast in time scale is the same as the contrast between the partial and the perfect. So the perfect then is when Jesus returns, when the world comes to an end, the end of this age. And that's why we say faith, hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Because they all abide, there will still be faith in the world to come and hope in the world to come, because hope is knowing what sure and certain things are going to happen. And love uh, will obviously last, because we'll be in a constant, eternal loving relationship. So clearly the greatest of those is love. So... There are people who say, well, it's not obvious that we're talking about the world to come. But they're saying that because they have a prior agenda, because they're using eisegesis. If we use exegesis on this, as we have just done, 
all the way through uh, the um, the chapter, the short chapter uh, 13 of 1 Corinthians, we see that when you come to this without a bias, without a preconceived idea, without a, uh, uh, um, bringing your own agenda to this, it's clearly obvious that tongues, prophecies and knowledge will cease. They will cease when the perfect comes. And when the perfect comes is when Jesus returns, when he brings the world to an end. That is when tongues, prophecies and knowledge cease. And for that reason, at the moment, since the world has not come to an end, they continue. Doesn't mean to say that we don't believe that scripture is complete. Scripture is complete. So whatever prophecy, tongues and knowledge are going on now, they are clearly not adding to scripture. Tongues cannot do so because they're prayers. And by the way, they don't have to be human languages. It does mean the same as languages. It is true. Even some charismatics have said it must be human languages. I know David Pawson used to say that. But it talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, the tongues of men and of angels. And uh, again, one recent talk I heard immediately said, well, it's the only place where you hear about the tongues of angels. As, uh, you know, saying this is some sort of hyperbole. But, you know, Paul is not lying here. He is using hyperbole. He is saying, you know, that whatever language it may be. But he's not talking, he's not using for hyperbole a type of language that doesn't exist. And then again, I heard it said, well, this is the only place where it talks about tongues of angels. That's true. It is the only place where it talks about tongues of men in other places. This is the only place where it talks about tongues of angels. I would simply ask, how many times does something have to appear in Scripture before you believe it? I've heard that with other things. People saying, well, you know, Jesus never talked about homosexuality or whatever. Or, uh, you know, saying what it was that um, people say certain things and we don't read about them very often. The millennium can only be found in one chapter in uh, the Bible. Um, how many times does it need to be said for you to believe it's true? If it's in scripture, just once. And particularly if it's very clear what it's referring to. And it is pretty obvious here what it's referring to. Tongues or languages of men and of angels. And so there we have it. That's, um, uh, that is showing you then uh, from scripture, when you come to scripture without any preconception, without any bias, Remember, I came to this with the bias originally of believing that uh, um, the gifts had ceased. And it was by looking at the scripture here that I was convinced that the gifts had not ceased. It's looking at scripture that tells us this. Uh, and uh, when we come to this passage of scripture and other passages of scripture without our preconceptions, that is what we see. That is what we read. Well, I hope that's been useful. Please don't forget that if you disagree with me on this, uh, you are my brother, you're my brethren. Um, it is not um, a salvific issue, okay? It's clearly not a salvific issue. There are plenty of things where I disagree with other Christians and I'm happy to sit down and have fellowship and break bread with them. You know, I take a minority view on eschatology. I believe it's a biblical view but it is definitely a minority view. And we've talked about that on many occasions. Um, I'm probably taking a majority view on this, I suspect, but it is, um, it is nevertheless a view that many godly people who I love and respect uh, disagree with. And by the way, 
Since we're on the subject of me being a Reformed Christian, believing the gifts continue, I could spend a long time, and I think I will on another occasion, pointing out all the abuses. It's notable that R.T. Kendall in his book Holy Fire, where he argues for a continuance of the gifts, nevertheless did include a chapter called Strange Fire, echoing John MacArthur's book, because there is strange fire. There are people who exercise so-called gifts of the Spirit, which are not gifts of the Spirit, and which are opposed to Scripture, and they are at best mistaken, and at worst heretical. And I think it would be perfectly fair and perfectly reasonable to uh, pick on those things and to go through them in detail. Let's try and do that on another occasion, but I'm not going to lengthen this section now. So having gone through that, I think it's time for something completely different. Well, there we have it. Um, it's been a mammoth edition of the Proverbs 1810 podcast, podcast number 58. Uh, I don't think 59 will be that long, and God willing, it won't be take as long to do it, but I thought I wanted to produce uh, quite a packed show for you on this particular occasion. And we're not done yet. Um, some of you uh, may know that, I'm, uh, that I do play the piano and uh, sing and... I, I have actually got a booking um, recently uh, here in Sandpoint. I'll be uh, playing um, and singing a little bit at the Ponderé um, Wine Bar in, uh, on Cedar Street in uh, Sandpoint. And that will be on uh, Wednesday, September the 28th, between 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock. So if you're in uh, the area and you want to come in here... Um, some of my piano music, then come along on that occasion. Okay, that's Wednesday, September the 28th, and it's uh, from 5 o'clock through 7 o'clock. And uh, one of the songs that I'm, I would hope to do on that occasion is, uh, I'll try, be trying to do quite a number of 70s and 80s piano stuff, uh, piano pop stuff, um, Billy Joel, Elton John, that sort of thing. So here's a song called Blue Eyes, which was recorded by and written by Elton John and this is my version of it to close the show. Lord. 
Like a clear blue sky Watching over me Love